Welcome to the Build the Future podcast, where we have conversations that promote positive and exciting visions of the future. Today, we're talking with Pat Riley, a creative director at Bitcoin Magazine. In Bitcoin Magazine, they're promoting the future of digital currency through media and the organization of the annual Bitcoin conference. Let's jump right in. Thanks for coming on. I love the solar punk piece you wrote. And I'm like, this is great. I should talk to Pat. And then I saw that you kind of, you're deep in the, the Bitcoin space. I'm like, oh, let's just record this as a podcast. Let's talk about all things under the sun. So sustainability, crypto, psychedelics, all that good stuff. Thank you for, for, <laughs> for coming on. Yeah, of course. Yeah, appreciate reading that article. And uh, yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited to see what we cover here. So you, you mentioned you're you're in um, Miami right now. I was I, I don't know I, I scrolled through your Twitter feed. Looked like you're also in Austin relatively recently. And both those cities seem to be the next tier of places to go live and work instead of companies, at least in the U.S. Uh, I'm curious how, how do you think about the two? Yeah, it's funny. I, I've spent a lot of time uh, in both of them this year. I don't know if you if I mentioned this, but I kind of during the pandemic, I actually sold my house and I bought an Airstream. And uh, that was kind of my way of trying to make the best of a situation. So I actually, you know, me and my wife and my uh, my kids, we toured around the country, kind of like, you know, experiencing nature, you know, getting to see a ton of different, you know, parts of the U.S. and how each city, each population was kind of handling this differently. And, uh, you know, Miami and Austin were both spots that were kind of these bastions of freedom. And of course, you know, the Bitcoin community, of course, kind of naturally gravitated toward that as well. So I, I'm interested in those two spots kind of for that reason. They're becoming pubs for people that are trying to work on these projects. And it's been really cool to see, you know, like the uh, the mayor of Miami kind of embrace that and say, you know, welcome, let's trial some of this stuff. Let's let's put, you know, our money where our mouth is here. And Austin, of course, is, you know, Texas might as well be its own country, right? right, right. So <laughs> they of course have that that spirit of uh in- independence. Yeah. So I think that that's that's kind of why they both popped up as kind of these these hubs for some of this tech that we're working on. It's cool you took, I mean, we were able to kind of go get an Airstream. One, it's cool you're able to get one at all because they immediately just like got pulled off the market. Everyone's like, oh, I have to get one. And now we're able to take the time to you know, travel around the US. I just want to hear more about like what that was like. What what surprised you? Kind of what made you hopeful traveling around? Yeah. I mean, it was incredibly eye-opening. I, I had always just wanted to explore you know, the country just from like a, a natural perspective, like there's so much natural beauty out there. I spent a ton of time in uh, Utah, which is just gorgeous, you know, Montana, like all these places that like are just natural wonders, honestly, these, these, you know, preserves of just, you know, pure wilderness, you know, it's just, it's just amazing to visit, but it's interesting too, is the people, you know, that come along with it. And I think that like, it was, you know, really eye opening for me to during the year of 2020 and, and leading into 2021, while, you know, we're all at each other's throats on social media and like the news is just, you know, blaring negativity to actually just go and like talk to people, see how different people were handling it. And it was honestly really inspiring, you know, because I think there's a huge disconnect between how we act online and, and how we act in person, right? So you're in person, you're getting feedback from somebody, you're understanding that that's another human being on the end of the line, there's a feedback cycle. So I don't know, I, I felt like it in a year that was like a very tough year for many people, I actually kind of took a big chunk of optimism out of it. People are resilient, people 
will survive. And also there's just a ton of different types of people, which if you don't go out of your way to go find them, it's very easy to kind of craft a, a narrative of what people are like. And, uh, you know, that's a trap that we all fall into, really. The people who have time to post online are going to have a different like worldview than the people who are just kind of quickly scrolling through to get like advice on something or, you know, check what supplements to buy or, you know, trade ideas. And I think Twitter, Twitter's the same thing. It's like, there's just so much noise. We're like, oh my God, the world's burning down. But if you know where to look, that's not the case at all. There's a lot of cool stuff being built right now across all sorts of spaces. And that kind of segues into one of the things I love to just ask people is what are you most hopeful for? Usually I ask, what are you most excited about? But uh, in your the solar punk piece, you used the word hopeful, which I thought was nice. So I figured I'd reframe that here with you. It's what are you most hopeful for for the future? I think I'm most hopeful for uh, the next generation, right? Like I'll just, I, I actually tweeted about this earlier this week. Yesterday I was getting coffee and I was just sitting there uh, enjoying the morning. And next to me was a, a table of, uh, I'd say maybe 14, 15 year olds. Right. And they're there getting their coffee, which I don't know. I didn't start drinking coffee till way later, but I rest my case. And I was just, you know, sitting there and kind of overhearing their conversation. And they were talking about all sorts of stuff, you know, they're digitally native people. So they, they grew up on the internet. They never kind of had to wrestle with like kind of the existential angst that a lot of millennials kind of had to go through of like being those people that crossed that chasm, you know, they were just born into this they don't see it's weird at all. And, uh, you know, the, the topics that they, I know it's totally anecdotal, but like they were talking about like data privacy, right. They're like, you know, how can I protect my data? I don't want, you know, these corporations stealing my data. I don't want people looking through my webcam, you know, how can I use encryption to kind of protect myself? And, uh, I just was like, how old are you guys? Like, this is, this is, you guys are 14 year olds. And they're talking about, you know, how SMS is not secure and how they didn't, they didn't like Mark Zuckerberg because they felt like he was, you know, extracting their data for his own means. And I was just like, oh my gosh, like this was not the conversation I was having at 14. So I'd say, you know, if you want to know what the future is going to look like, you have to listen to people younger than you because they are the future. And of course, there's always exceptions, but I've found, you know, Gen Z and, and people that are kind of coming up right now to give me a lot of hope, you know? And, and that's just been really cool to see. It's crazy though, when you contrast that with the education system today, it seems like it's just not functional at all. And yet somehow we have kids who are somehow merging through that, the muck and the mud to like innovate and want to do things. Do you have any thoughts on, on like what might be going on there? I don't know. I, I, you know, I can only speak for myself and kind of my experience with the education system, but I think there's a general sentiment right now that people are kind of waking up to, you know, that this, the education system was essentially like, it's like what, 50, a hundred years old almost at this point. And it was designed for a very specific purpose, which was, you know, during the industrial revolution, we wanted to, you know, streamline our education process to make, you know, good workers and right. uh, people <laughs> right. that, people that, you know, we're going to go and like fill out a need and like build up our, our efforts against the war. And I just think that that is just not the reality, but we're still going off those textbooks. I mean, there's, there's plenty of writing about this and people that know about the kind of challenges about how to change it more than me. But I think going back to the Gen Z people, I think they're just looking at it and they're, they're not asking for anyone's permission, right? They're like, I want to start a YouTube channel. Boom. I'm going to start a YouTube channel. I got income coming in. Remind me again why I need accreditation or like a stamp of approval. I think that's a huge factor. I'm not discrediting, you know, 
the importance of higher education. There's certainly fields that it makes complete sense to have that, you know, more centralized and organized approach. But um, I don't know. This is this is just something that I've observed. And I wouldn't be surprised that, you know, with like online classes and like these, you know, this this exchange of ideas, master classes, more and more people are like, I'm just going to subscribe to like six of these people and, and get my education that way and learn by doing. And um, I think that's a model that works for, you know, more people than we know. I was talking with someone the other day about this shift. And it seems like the one of the main narratives is that like esports and video games is a great example of what I'm about to say, which is everyone can find a path. There's no more like, oh, you have to do X, Y, or Z. Those are the only three things like you have to, if you want a good life, you have to go, I think, what, doctor, lawyer, or banker, which is kind of what, what most people think of. But now kids are able to go online. Like, yeah, as you said, like, oh, I can be a YouTuber. Oh, I can go like, write. I can go connect with people from all over the world and figure out like how I can help them with whatever project they're working on. And then I like, actually get work experience versus sitting around in the classroom. And I think that's something that, that I'm trying to promote too just like, how do we get more people realizing that they can take responsibility and like go play their own game? Like the system that has been running the show for the last 50, 100 years has kind of had its had its time. And we're moving into a new a new era where there's new possibilities, like lots of interesting paths forward for people. Absolutely. I mean, and that's kind of a segue into like, what, you know, what I have been working on the past, you know, five, seven years, which is, uh, you know, cryptocurrency and, and more specifically Bitcoin in my case, because, you know, uh, the internet, opened up the door for what we just described, right? Like that made it possible, but there's still a key component there that was missing, which was which was the monetization. And so, the, you know, now if someone wanted to build an app that has monetization built in, if they wanted to do anything in finance, if they wanted to do anything international, right? And just in, and service customers outside of a, a centralized platform or service customers outside of their jurisdiction, they can now do so. And so, you know, that that was one of the most exciting things about Bitcoin that got me involved in the early days is just the fact that like there can be a teenager sitting in somewhere in Argentina and he can now trustlessly engage, collaborate and build with somebody in let's say Amsterdam. Right. And that to me is like, when you grasp the implications of that, it's, it's just as exciting, if not more than the internet itself. Can you elaborate a little bit on, on some of those implications? Like what is Bitcoin actually doing for the world and what, what sort of world is it leading us into? So I think a lot of people just think, oh, it's this digital currency that's used for black market purchases or like store value for gold. Like what else is going on? Like what, what should people be thinking about in terms of like how this is actually going to change the way that our world works? Dude, uh, you hit the nail on the head. Like um, that's something that, you know, since I've been in it has been like a narrative that like I've had to face. Like I used to not tell people at parties I was involved in Bitcoin because they're like, oh, you must be a drug dealer. And I was like, well, (laughs) (laughs) like, no, the the drug dealers dress nicer. They get paid better than me. They go to Washington. We're a totally different breed. But I mean, that's something that I I have been seeing change is is kind of the stigma around it. And I think more and more people we saw with the uh, like El Salvador announcement recently are realizing that Bitcoin is not just, it's such a multifaceted thing. You know, you can look, it's like a diamond. You can look at this through a thousand different lenses and it's endlessly fascinating and endlessly revolutionary. But to your point, I think there is this huge strain of optimism in that uh, this is enabling, it's giving power back to people. It's breaking down some of the corruption and some of the control and some kind of the perverse incentives that we've seen in government. It's stripping power away from them and it's enabling people to trade freely, take back control 
over something that should, you know, belong to everybody, which is just value, right? And it's breaking down borders all across the world. And um, it's very difficult to sell Bitcoin to Americans or people that were born into a Western society where like, you know, your credit card works just fine. You know, your banking system, more or less, it gets the job done. You don't have to go that far outside of your bubble to realize, you know, that some huge percentage of the world is not only unbanked, but their currencies are more volatile than Bitcoin itself. They don't have access to basic financial tools. They can't build themselves up because they're lacking this human, this basic human need, which is, you know, sovereignty over their uh, resources. Yeah, well, that's why that's why the El Salvador thing is super important. Can you kind of just talk about kind of what's happened there, kind of this announcement, this like thing that that's been going on, and then what that means for El Salvador than other countries that are that don't have stabilized currencies, or that that have like a bit more currency fluctuation. Yeah, it's it's interesting. We actually we actually broke that news at the uh, at our uh, flagship conference down here in Miami recently, and it kind of came to a surprise to all of us. I think it was kind of a a last minute thing, a lot of moving parts. And I think the general sentiment from the Bitcoin community was this is happening a lot sooner than we thought. You know, we all thought that this cycle was going to be about institutional adoption, private companies, more serious, you know, investors. And we I don't I I was kind of taken back by uh the nation state adoption here. And um, you know, it's it's too early to tell how it's all going to play out. I think you know, there's a there's a motto in the Bitcoin community, like don't trust, verify. And so we're always very skeptical of things and promises, like until you actually see, you know, the positive results or or something that's working, to take it with a grain of salt. But um really I think the most valuable thing coming out of El Salvador is it's a laboratory, right? Like this is a, an entire country that decided to move off of the dollar standard, not even move off of it, just introduce this other parallel system. And uh, they're going to go through and they're going to encounter challenges, UX problems, uh, you know, financial problems, like dealing with other countries. And that's going to be kind of a model that everybody can look at and learn from. And then when the next, you know, nation state comes along and says, hey, I'm thinking about offering this to my citizens, they're going to have a playbook here, some lessons learned to kind of go by. And I think that that's kind of how we should look at El Salvador, not as you know, this is the end all be all more like this is a lab and it's the perfect place to do it because, um, you know, they lost their currency in the civil war. They, uh, you know, a huge portion of their GDP is relying on remittances, which is something that Bitcoin's exceedingly efficient at. And uh, they are trying to bring tech and innovation to their country and empower their people. And I, I think it, it makes sense for all those reasons. I remember when when it was Jack. Uh... Mahler's. Mm-hmm. Jack Mahler's yeah on stage talking about this he was tearing up and I, I mean I was I wasn't uh, in Miami but I was watching kind of the recap um, from home and I just got, I just was, like overcome with a sense of like excitement and possibility in, in a way like the rockets like relanding it was like on that scale of, like oh something big just happened here and we don't know what the full implications are but this is going to be one of those this may be like a shelling point for the space or for like the movement where this thing is actually picking up steam and like it's actually being taken seriously and how might the world change as a result of this? You know, that's like the big open question, but there's movement and there's something, there's like stuff going on behind the scenes. And so I don't know, that, that was super cool. You guys were able to kind of pull that together and showcase that announcement because then gave a lot of people hope. 
Absolutely. Jack did a hell of a job and we, you know, I think he's a great, great spokesperson for for that cause. And I mean, the ripple effects even the next day were felt, you know, certain politicians started singing a different tune. A lot of people kind of initially thought this isn't that big of a deal. Like what's the market cap of El Salvador? And I think, you know, it was kind of easy to, it's like how many Apple, how many El Salvador's can fit in Apple's market cap, you know? And it's like, that that's a valid point, but this is this is much more symbolic than that. This is much this this sent this sent shockwaves throughout the entire world. Like not one country didn't take notice, and um, I think that kind of alludes to what you felt while watching it. We're both in the U.S. right now. How do you think that takes shape here uh, domestically? This kind of crypto Bitcoin movement because we saw you have you have Wyoming. They're kind of doing legislature around DAOs. You have a few other senators that are very pro pro crypto. I'm curious kind of what you see going on here and like how this may be a path for us to solve some of the, the challenges we're facing here in the U.S. It's such a complicated issue, especially politics is something that I've never really aimed to get into and understand. So I'm, I'm looking at this from a distance and I guess my take on it is there's clearly some people that are like, look, this is one of the fastest growing sectors of innovation in America right now. Uh, you know, right now, a lot of the big companies, a lot of the talent are located here. And, you know, we need to do everything in our power to keep them here, right? Like, especially after 2020, when people are going back to their, you know, homeland, or they're going back to where other places that have jurisdictions that are encouraging entrepreneurs and innovation. I think that America needs to really wake up to this and be like, look, if we clamp down on this and apply, you know, 50, 100 year old legislation to this thing that basically escapes definition, we're going to lose talent. We're going to squash innovation, and and that and and we're not going anywhere. You know, we're going to go where we need to to push this forward because we believe it's that important for for the whole world, not just America. So I, I really hope that that kind of overrides our kind of initial knee jerk reaction, which is basically like control. And um, you know, I, I also do think that you know Bitcoin does pose a certain threat to the dollar and, you know, the government's control over monetary policy. So they should be taking this very seriously. But the government doesn't work for themselves. The government, as it was originally designed, is supposed to work for the people. And I think we saw the people stand up to their senators, to their congressmen, all these people and say, this is an important issue for us. You know, we want it to be taken seriously. Yeah, that was a that was a pretty powerful moment because that was, and I was like two weeks ago almost. Can you enlighten me on the specifics here? Yeah, and and I'm in the same boat as well. Like it moved so quickly, and uh, you know it's moving through the political system, and there's all these different amendments out. Uh, I would encourage your listeners to check out Bitcoin Magazine. We cover all of this stuff really in depth. Uh, we're hosting Twitter Spaces with with people who are very familiar with like the up to date moments. Overall, I would say it really just highlighted that they had no idea what they were talking about, to be honest. That was kind of the shocking part is that there, we didn't really, all the proposed amendments, they were like going to, you know, ban proof of stake for a minute. And then they're like, no, not proof of stake, proof of work. And then they said, no, everyone's a financial broker. Like it really, it was really like shocking to me to see kind of some of our most experienced political leaders show a very rudimentary understanding of this technology to the point of where they couldn't even talk cohesively about it, you know? And so there was like some basic one-on-one stuff in there that they just weren't grasping. And, and you can tell that they just had people in their ear and it was all happening fast. So I think that that was kind of my main takeaway about, you know, their ability to handle the situation. This is something that should take 
years of, you know, in-depth discourse, hearing from the companies, hearing from the users, hearing from, you know, regulators and really dive into this and, and, and craft a path forward. It's not something that can be solved in a week for sure. Certainly not. I think something that's like clearly broken in our, in kind of the system with them, which is like, there's people, there's not enough like hubris. You're like, oh, this is a complex thing. This has profound implications. Let me, let me look into it and understand it and get excited about it. Uh, instead, it's like, oh no, this is a scary new thing. I don't understand. Or this seems like to pose a threat to you know, my current interests. Let's just brush it aside. I'm trying to remember if I mentioned to you kind of the underlying project here, which is to revive and reimagine the World's Fair here in the U.S. So how do we turn the future into a, into a physical place that people can, that millions of people can come to, to touch, feel, and experience? And one of the storylines I think is really important to immerse people into and get them to understand and think about is this kind of decentralization kind of Bitcoin narrative. And I'm curious, I just want to riff with you a little bit, like what might that story look like to the people who are unacquainted with Bitcoin right now, or maybe they've heard about it, what should the story feel like, or, or what, like, what should the story arc look like to get people understanding the technology and then being excited about it? Uh, yeah, I mean, there's there's so many angles. I think you know, to your point about kind of touching and feeling and, and the whole kind of mission that you have going on with the World Fair, I just want to applaud that effort because as someone who throws events and has kind of seen the uh, the quality of discourse that happens in person versus online, it, it's night and day, and. Uh, you know, especially when dealing with these subject matters that are just like so complex, it's it's not something you can describe in a tweet. Like you have to have a conversation and and react in real time, and uh, you know have that discourse. And so I think that like what you're going for is absolutely the right right approach. I, I think it's I think it's great. As far as the Bitcoin narrative, I mean, as as far as being a world fair, there's there's nothing more global than Bitcoin itself. Like Bitcoin. Bitcoin is it's it, it knows no borders, it knows no country, it doesn't know who you are, it doesn't know what age you are, it doesn't know where you come from. And I think that's you know just a beautiful thing in, in today's day and age that like this is a tool that humanity has created to basically be a bridge that is almost exempt from our our human biases. And uh, that's beautiful in its own way, in its own way. But I think you know, another you know, really interesting aspect to this is. And this is something that I've been thinking about recently is that as Bitcoiners and these early adopters and just really anybody who has kind of seen where things are going and bought into this, has some working capital, wants to basically do some good in the world, right? Like we're now looking at a very, very wealthy and ambitious and, in my opinion, optimistic demographic. And so I I think one of the cool things about Bitcoin is that there's no middleman. So we can create new methods of funding projects that we want to see directly. And so, you know, I'm just looking at it and like on one hand we have a very optimistic, forward-thinking, wealthy demographic and then on the other hand we have an upcoming generation that has all these ideas, all the ambition in the world and they just need some working capital to go make it happen. And we don't need to sit around and wait for subsidies or this or that. We can just put these two people together and be like go. That's what's been really cool to see is the funding or kind of the capital that's been accumulated in the Bitcoin and Ethereum and other crypto spaces, like being repurposed. Like you have most of the, the heads of a lot of the, the kind of the currencies who have set up foundations. You have it's like Jed McCabe from Stellar has like this Astera, which is like this private science like foundation where they're funding all sorts of deep tech stuff and just research. And this this was not possible 10 years ago. Even like if we separate crypto 
out. We also have like the, the tech space where up until 2008, 2009, like the IPO exits, I mean, a lot of people made money in the early 2000s run up, but it wasn't the same sort of like cultural ethos where that, that kind of Silicon Valley had kind of accumulated over the, the decades. But then you had people starting companies like Uber and Dropbox and Airbnb and Stripe and like all these companies being built by forward thinking, ambitious people who saw the world was broken and wanted to change it and now have the capital to like funnel that back into projects. Like there's so much capital, from, not not like there's a lot of capital out there, but there's a lot of capital specifically from people who are optimistic. And I think that's something that we haven't had before. And these people are like, I just want, I want the world to be dope. I want that solar punk future. But it, instead of like, oh, I expect, you know, 10% returns every year for the like into infinity. Like I think people are still doing that calculus, but less, they're less, less concerned about it. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you mentioned like some of the early IPO companies, like that's one of the cool parts about Bitcoin is that like, you know, while certainly profitability and finding a profit product market fit is important, some of these products and projects are just, you know, in a sense, kind of free from that, right? Like if they can kind of, they don't have to basically change their business model or be obligated. Well, they have to be obligated to their, you know, shareholders in a certain way. But I do think there is a, a certain freedom that comes with uh, this new model that allows people to kind of pursue the right idea and not make a pivot or, you know, a wrong turn for an artificial constraint. If we play this out, how do you think this shapes the world we live in, right? Where people are able to kind of finance some of these creative projects without perhaps the, the challenging incentives that the existing system requires, where you have to constantly be chasing growth at all costs if you want to get anything funded. I don't know. I, I think that's kind of one of the things I'm most interested in watching play out. You know, I, Bitcoin companies, I guess I can kind of speak to is that like, um, you know, there's there's certain companies that have gotten funding. And they kind of conduct like what's called like blue sky research search, you know, Blockstream is a company that is kind of uh, in that field. And what I really like about, you know, their model and other companies model is that they're, you know, they might have raised the money for one reason. And that's, you know, certainly fine. But really, the thing about Bitcoin is that as long as they're creating tools that the ecosystem needs, and people are wanting to find that essentially raises the value of the Bitcoin ecosystem. And then if they're, if they're sitting on, you know, their treasury is sitting on Bitcoin, then of course they benefit from it. And, you know, that's just a whole different set of incentives than like, you know, we hired, you know, or we got funding for a series A, we're going to go to market with a specific strategy. And if it doesn't work, then we're going to pivot and see what we can do here. As long as these companies are benefiting their ecosystem, a rising tide lifts everybody up if they're holding. So I think that that is one example of kind of, uh, what you were alluding to and a new model that's unfolding. Yeah, the religiosity of the Bitcoin movement too is like super excited to see it's like just hold, buy and hold. And like everyone's kind of taking this long-term view, which runs counter to most of the other things in the world we live in, where it's like, you know, quick, fleeting, dopamine hit here, dopamine hit there, like what's next, what's next, what's next. And Bitcoin seems to be one of the only Maybe like the last bastion of like, nope, I am taking a very long-term view here. I am going to hold and I'm not going to be, you know, influenced by the ups and the downs, just like write it out. Uh, is there anything else that's kind of like not as mainstream that most people don't know about that makes the Bitcoin community or just kind of the space in general like, unique? Well, I think you kind of touched on one of the most interesting aspects of it was, is basically like when you hold Bitcoin, 
that mindset shift mindset shift that occurs, right? So like our existing system was totally debt based. It was totally, you know, spending based. Like when the when the market crashes, they pull all the levers that they can to basically encourage spending. Credit card companies actively market to new students saying, hey, go in debt with us, spend money. I mean, it's dangerous. I I, I was in that same boat. I bought a laptop when I was young. And <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, so I feel like that's one of the really interesting parts that's often overlooked is basically you know, here's a here's a money technology that basically incentivizes that long-term thinking like you were thinking about, but also it really makes people question their purchases, right? Like, it, do I really need to spend this amount of money on this thing when my I can have double the spending power in, in the future? And, um, you know, that might have short-term, you know, downsides when you look at it as far as like boosting the economy and stuff, but it's longer-term upsides because then they're, they're still going to allocate that capital is just going to be to something greater. It's going to be to something more. And the interesting thing is that like people making products, they will, they'll hear that, you know? So like a, a big problem with consumerism is like planned obsolescence, right? Like we, we, we create these products and we almost, they're almost incentivized to have them break within a year so that next year you got to buy the new model. You know, I was just actually visiting some family and I was looking at like an old, sewing machine. And I was looking at this thing and it was like an old singer sewing machine. And it was built like a tank, you know, like it was like built out of solid steel. Like it still worked like a charm today. And, uh, you know, there's, there's a whole conversation about why, you know, we don't have those things anymore, but I guess what I'm getting at is it's, you know, once the individuals, once the buyers kind of change their preference and what they want, the market will adapt and we'll probably create products that are more, you know, quality, have a longer longevity. And um, yeah, I think that that's probably going to be net positive for a whole bunch of reasons. I, I think so too. And you can compare that with some of the technology that they build their own things, um, this kind of return to craftsmanship that may be fueled by this solar punk aesthetic where people are like, oh, I can go build a community kind of out in nature. I was talking with, I think I sent you the, the on, on solar punk Substack. If not, I'll, I'll send it back. I'll send it over to you. But the guy writing at Paul Fletcher Hill had this great point where people think it's either it's like one or the other. We have these, these dystopian cities or these cyberpunk cities, or we have these kind of solar punk like out integrated in nature. But we can have both. There's not this dichotomy. Like you can have a wild, fun adventure in the city and live with your friends, with your family, with your community and like have a meaningful, fulfilling life out in nature and like the transportation that will be created to enable kind of moving quickly between the two will only accelerate as, as we move into the future. So it's, I don't know, it's like a really cool thing to think about. Absolutely. I mean, you know, as I was saying earlier, like I kind of, you know, took this past year off to go experience the side of nature. And, uh, you know, I kind of had this thesis that like, uh, I wanted to, you know, exit society, go basically see, you know, how I could live more in touch with myself, live simpler elevate my level of happiness. And I think I certainly did that to an extent, but it was, it was so funny. It, I thought that basically I was like, this is my, I'm sending off and I'm never going to look back. And this is the way, this is the way to live. But it was so funny because I would be in the middle of the desert. I would be totally, you know, living in touch with nature. And I would be like, man, Bitcoin is the coolest project that is going on right now. <laughs> and, and, yeah. and, 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 and like, and, I, and it's like, that is just a testament that like, you know, now I'm coming back from this journey and like that balance was especially key, but now I'm coming back from this journey and, and to your point, like you can have both. Like now I'm just like, I'm loving the feel of the city. You know, I'm loving the high energy 
And, uh, you know, I think that that balance is super critical for individuals, but also, you know, for societies as we design them moving forward. Um, it's not an either or. You're right. Got to find that balance. Yeah. So on the on the solar punk stuff, like just on that piece, you, we kind of we connected over the shared understanding or shared interest in the in the fact that like the the visions for the future that we have shape kind of what or shape our imagination. And science fiction has done a not so great job of of providing us like alternate realities that are that are exciting and, and prosperous. I want to ask, out of the the science fiction you've read, what promised technology that hasn't arrived are you most excited about? Man. <laughs> that is a hard one. I mean, I could you could totally go for like the fun stuff, right? Like spacecraft and all that stuff. The flying cars and the hovercraft. Yeah, yeah. Airships. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, or like the or the biotech route where like you can like change your eye color and like change your appearance. I mean, there's there's so many, there's so much imagination in science fiction. One of the books that I think about often is uh Ian Banks. I don't know if you're familiar with him. He writes a series called the Culture Series. And what I love about his book and kind of the promise of uh, the technology he, he talks about is he basically is thinking so far ahead, you know, millions of years in the future where basically humanity has reached like what's called like post-scarcity, where anything can be created at any given point in time. Like we have immortality has been solved, like essentially like everything's been checked, you know, we, interplanetary travel. And he and he basically kind of you know, what I love about science fiction writers is they basically start wrestling with these concepts, like, you know, thousands of years before we do, or we even have to think about it. And, and, and he's, and he kind of looks into that, like, you know, if we have all our basic needs met, if we have unlimited life, what do we do, you know? <laughs> and it's really, I mean, he, he has books about like how we play these games and there's certain people that kind of say, this isn't, natural they opt out of it and like you know the struggle and the push and the pull still goes on and you and you never i mean utopia is a nice it's something to strive toward i think but then once you get there conflict is part of the fabric of this reality and uh i just think that authors like him it just really makes you think i'm not sure if if he talks about this in in the culture series but another conversation i have we were talking about how when humans reach the point where we can like where we do extend our, or, you know, we kind of unlock kind of or we cure aging. We unlock some of these longevity things. We're living longer, healthier lives. And then we have the acceleration in, in space tech and we're going to explore the galaxy. There's going to be certain subs of people who are like, that just doesn't interest. And instead their, their frontier shifts from, you know, space to like the, the frontier, like within. And, and this is kind of a good segue to kind of drugs and consciousness exploration where, there's a possibility where people can just could like go experience, like explore, like sustain psychedelic states and tap into, you know, this theorized like global consciousness that we all share. And there's like this, this adventure that you can take into the self versus out into the galaxy. I'm just like curious what your thoughts are on, on this space in general and kind of the future of, of psychedelics. Cause I know that's something we were, I want to talk to you about. The future is certainly interesting, but also as far as psychedelics are concerned, I feel like the past is is just as interesting to look into, you know, because if you look at, uh, you know, some of like Graham Hancock's work and stuff, it's still theoretical, but I mean, it, it's looking increasingly likely like with civilizations that we found like Gobekli Tepe and, you know, places that we haven't even discovered yet, just because we haven't dug that deep, that basically, you know, humankind is much older than we think. And, and there were, you know, quote unquote, advanced civilizations 
that existed here way before us. And I think a lot of times we, when we hear that word advanced civilizations, it's like, oh, what are you talking about? Like ancient aliens, like there's people that had cars on earth that like we, that we're just going to dig up and stuff. And I think that that's kind of missing the point in that, like, you know, it's totally possible that we had an advanced civilization that kind of came to that conclusion that like, Hey, if we, you know, we have this infinitely inward space to explore. And, you know, if, if we, if we found a way to live symbiotically with the environment and we have all of our civilization's needs met, then like, this is the frontier. And, you know, whether they experience that through plant medicine or whether they experience that through like fasting or yoga or whatever, like we have no idea how advanced they got down that path. And, uh, clearly, you know, it didn't work out <laughs> for whatever reason, they're not here. Uh, you know, who's to really say, but to your point earlier, like it's clear what trajectory we are on now. Like we're going to the stars, like we're, 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 we're moving. It's happening. It, it's exciting. <laughs> yes. It's super exciting. Like, the, the new space race getting kicked off. I mean, I was hoping Bezos would throw the gauntlet down and uh, say, I am now taking CEO of Blue Origin and then do what he did with Amazon, apply that kind of ruthless relentlessness to uh, competing with Elon. Didn't appear to be the case, but nonetheless, there's lots of cool stuff being done there. Yeah. I mean, that's that's the trick. We got to explore outwardly. And uh, as we do that, we can't uh, forget to explore inwardly as well. I think uh, both are important. If, if we kind of riff, like expand on that, like, what do you think the the most important problems are for us to kind of tackle at least this decade or in the coming decades? The climate is certainly going to be a huge, huge challenge. I think um, wealth disparity is another one, right? Like just essentially, you know, this is something that we think a lot in the Bitcoin space about kind of the eradication of the middle class that we see, you know, and, and just this, this growing divide between people with means to basically do whatever they want and people who can't live on more than $5 a day. I think, I think that that is going to be a huge, huge issue that we see over the next decade or so. And I think that's also a situation which I'm, I'm not going to sit here and claim that Bitcoin can fix that 100%. But I think as long as we are pushing forward with, you know, new means of financial innovation, new means of governance, kind of trying to pry the power away from people who kind of got us in this situation in the first place, I hope that we can kind of make make some uh, advancements as far as kind of bringing back, you know, a healthy society that has a clear path to success because uh, that's that's missing right now. Yeah, that's kind of the other thing I'm hoping we can kind of shift the culture on. It's like, hey, how do we actually all end up in a positive sum world instead of this like zero sum one that we're living in now where there's this, yeah, there's this kind of growing gap between the uh, growing wealth gap. It's almost like, dystopian in a sense in like the like an elysium sort of way i don't know if you've seen that that matt damon movie where it's like all the people that have money they're like neglected earth and they're up on their their spaceship and everyone else is kind of down on earth but the gap that like interesting kind of thread with that sort of like technology actually enables kind of this is like the solution or like the underlying solution to a lot of these problems like oh people on earth are sick oh we have all these medical bays up on elysium and we can just provide that medical support to people on earth and then get them healthy and well and, and fixed and, and like not neglected. And then they're able to kind of go do more things and take responsibility for like rebuilding and creating something new that, that they're excited about. We're not, we're not there yet. <laughs> like the, the trends are all moving in the, like the right direction, at least from my perspective. Well, I think, I think you're right. I mean, I think, I think something that, uh, you know, I see in the tech industry is essentially that like, 
if we work on this technology product, that it will solve problems on its own. And there's certainly some truth to that if you if you put that out there and you know solve a need or something. But um, it also is going to take conscious effort, right? Like like just because there's a technology out there that is is vastly more efficient, it, it doesn't necessarily automatically route that intention. Like we still need to do that. And uh, an example that I always like to kind of think about to that point is like you look at like you know for all their flaws, the Carnegies, the Rockefellers of the previous era, you know when they became incredibly wealthy, right? They became the pillars of society and they built institutions, they built uh, education systems, they built infrastructure, they gave, they gave back and they, and they did so because they wanted to be admired and, and by the people. They didn't want to go isolate themselves and just live like the Elysium style of luxury. Like they, they wanted to lift up everybody. And I think um, at some point we kind of lost that, I think. And so again, just because we have better technology doesn't mean that we don't still have to route our intention through said technology. That's a great point. Yeah. It's like technology can be a force for good if we allow it to, if we like make it that way. Left to run away on its own. Now, perhaps, perhaps not. Outside of the the Bitcoin space, we talked about a couple of these things, but uh, just to explicitly ask, like, what are you most excited about? Like what, what technology, what change in the world outside of, of Bitcoin are you, are you most looking forward to? I think biotech, you know, that's something that I uh, admittedly just am a total amateur at. I've like started to, it's just, again, it's just like Bitcoin, like anything else. It's just such a complex topic that like, I just know how much I don't know, but at the end of the day, it's something that like over the next 10 years, it's something I'm going to be looking really heavily into because I think it is probably the most other exciting thing going on. Like the, not only the ability to like cure certain diseases, uh, tackle cancer, you know, but also the ability to like augment ourselves to basically kind of begin experimenting with that to begin overcoming some of our maybe hardwired flaws, right? (laughs) Right. That like we might be able to edit CRISPR is fascinating. The fact that like that's being democratized essentially, where basically like you know anybody with a laptop can can begin w- working with that. I, I I think that that's probably the you know second most. Well, I don't want to rank them, but it's it's one of the most most important fields. And uh, I I feel like the writing is on the wall that over the next ten years it's going to be just an explosive growth sector as well. Yeah. It's like, it's cool to kind of be involved, like, or have, have conversations and talk about this, this space. Cause like most people aren't privy to it, but if, if most people knew what was going on behind the scenes, the work we've done about tech, the innovation with CRISPR, with AlphaFold recently, or even with like OpenAI's Codex or the stuff with like DAOs and Ethereum and the implications of all the stuff is like wildly exciting and just not something that's kind of permeated the, the, the mass media zeitgeist. So I think we have, we have work to do to kind of get the message out there. But when you're looking in the right places, the future looks bright. Absolutely. And if you see something like a, like progress happening and it's happening only amongst a small group of people, like the old saying is like the future is here yet. It's just not evenly distributed. So give it two, three, four years, and that's going to be available to, uh, to everyone. Pat, where, where can people find you? Anything you want to plug? Yeah, I think the best place to find me is on Twitter. I'm underscore Riley IO you know, my website, everything that I'm working on at the Bitcoin conference at BTC Inc. 
is is linked to from there. So I think that that's probably the best place these days. Amazing. Thanks, man. This is a blast. Appreciate you. Appreciate you coming on and excited for all that's ahead in the, the Bitcoin crypto space and just the future more broadly. Thanks for having me on, man. And I look forward to, uh, you know, shaking your hand in person at the World Fair. I'm looking forward to it. Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Build the Future podcast. If you want to support the show, please share favorite episode with a friend. If you want to get updates on the events we're hosting, new podcast episodes, and follow along as we build the new World's Fair, you can follow me on Twitter at C-A-M-W-I-E-S-E. Until next time, go build.